0: Hello and welcome to a two part series of Cause High Viz, Cause Construction's podcast series. My name is David Hasty, associate with Cause's Construction Practice Group, and I'm joined today by Cause Senior Associate Melanie Bond. We sat down recently with Cause's CEO, John Denton, who is also first Vice Chair of the International Chamber of Commerce and co chair of the B20's Financing, Growth and Infrastructure Task Force. As co chair of the B20 Task Force, John provides recommendations around global business issues and initiatives to encourage global investment and economic growth with the aim of fostering business development. Mel, we were lucky enough to be drawing on some of John's insight with regard to infrastructure, both locally and globally. And in particular, this first podcast um, deals with um, issues with regard to three key areas. And this is the need for transparency, consistency and liquidity.
1: That's right, David. It's a really interesting and important conversation. Um, I mean, As we all know, since the GFC, economic growth has been quite subdued despite the best efforts of government. And infrastructure is well recognised as a key driver for economic growth. And we know that demand for infrastructure is only going to increase over time. And whilst governments have traditionally funded it themselves, they're going to increasingly uh, have to look to the private sector for assistance. But at the moment, there's already a considerable investment gap in infrastructure investment. So it is important that we understand what the ingredients for investment are.
0: Mm, Very true, Mel. So let's get to our sit down with John.
1: So, John, I thought um, one of the very interesting things that arose from the B20's paper on financing and infrastructure growth was that the investment gap in infrastructure is not actually the result of a shortage of capital. In fact, you know, you've got ideal conditions for investment. Long-term interest rates are low. There's ample supply of long-term finance. There's a lot of interest from the private sector in infrastructure, um, and the benefits of infrastructure are fairly obvious. So. What is holding back investment?
2: Huh. Well, I don't think it's... Um, uh, there are not enough conferences to talk about it, and there are not enough uh, papers written about it, and there are not enough uh, portals to actually examine it. Uh, there's plenty of those. In fact, um, uh, I suspect a number of your listeners, or our listeners, are, are conferenced out on the subject of infrastructure, but also big-numbered out on it as well. I mean. The usual number you'll hear and see is in Asia-Pac, there's something like $3 trillion worth of pent-up demand and opportunity, and if only the super funds would get their act together. The overriding issue, frankly, is it goes down to a lack of political will, uh, and we might come to that later on. Um, and why is there a lack of political will? Because often with the development of capital, it requires um, some domestic reform, and we can talk, obviously we'll talk about that. And it also requires some trade-offs. And it also requires a political discussion in a community about, well, some infrastructure is frankly uneconomic. Um, We accept that. We understand that. But to make it commercially viable, we may need to look at politically unpalatable uh, issues like user pays or some form of um, cost cost in order to make this attractive enough to engage with the private sector. What is interesting, and then coming out of the G20, each G20 leaves behind like a, a G20 child. Uh, in this case, it was the Global Infrastructure Hub, which is based in Sydney. And, uh, and it's relatively uncomplicated, again, to actually uh, think about these things in global movements. You actually only get things done when you uncomplicate things and focus on a small group of things. So you can actually measure them, monitor them, and make them visible and talk about them yes. in a coherent and consistent basis. So the, G- G- the Global Infrastructure Hub was designed to do something really uncomplicated and it picks up and one of the three issues that came out of the B20, which was around transparency. Yes. And it was to identify the opportunities and help people prioritise them and use best practice across the globe from other experiences to help emerging economies in particular and some developed economies to get their act together on infrastructure because investment and bringing on uh, infrastructure projects was seen as critical to actually helping support this increased global growth. The truth is, the global world does not move at lightning pace other than when we go to war or or we want to have a big barney over a trade dispute. It moves slowly when it comes to uh, uh, developing global approaches Uh, and you see how long it took, for example, for new forms of order. You see it just on, uh, on the environment. There's 20 or 30 years worth jawboning to get anything done. Yes. Uh, here on infrastructure and in the G20 context, it's just slow stuff. But slow stuff with building blocks. And the B20, which is the business arm of the G20, which I'm happy to have been one of the founders of, and has actually been involved in this global conversation, has over the years sought to direct leaders' attention to liberating the opportunity infrastructure as a way of helping them untracked economic growth. And so when we meet with the Germans, as the Germans as the presidents this year, we identify. And look, frankly, there's a lot more than three, but to actually get the attention of leaders, you actually have to reduce it down to three, because you basically have five minutes of their time. Yes. And the three really are pretty uncomplicated. One is this lack of transparency that needs to be addressed. The other is lack of consistency. Mm-hmm. We use different terms. We don't understand what we're talking about. And the final one, which is very important, but is a really hard issue to grapple with, which which is liquidity constraints. If I could, the final one is actually the hardest one to deal with, liquidity constraints. Because you know that these are long-term investments with long-term applications or allocations of capital. One of the challenges to attract the amount of capital that's available is, that the secondary markets that underpin movement of that capital in and out of the projects are underdeveloped. The instruments just don't exist in some economies. The classic example is, that when I go back to this big number of $3 Mm. with the pent-up demand in Asia-Pac, one of the critical issues in Asia-Pac is that there's actually a very shallow capital market operating, which makes it very difficult for people to actually fund these projects outside government balance sheets. Of course, as you know, Many of those balance sheets are pretty weak. Uh, and the alternative is private lending from private banks. And of course, you know, if you were to go to Indonesia, the most significant lender in Indonesia in anything is private banking. They actually don't use a lot of debt instruments. Mm-hmm. So one of the challenges, how do we develop up that secondary market? And so bringing that to the attention of um, leaders is important, and ensuring work is commenced on that. Work is going on in the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, i together with a guy called Mark Johnson, one of the founders of Macquarie founded a group called the Asia Pacific Financial Forum, Mm -hmm. and that's its purpose, is to actually help find ways of bringing together in a collaborative setting all the key players that can help deepen the capital markets. Because our, our, uh, our eyes are on the prize, which is actually how do you support therefore the shift to investment in not just talking about infrastructure. So we need to do all those capital markets stuff. So the absence of liquidity is really... The absence of a secondary market is really the key issue, I think. And then on top of that is how do you get political leaders to actually... How do you help them understand there will be some trade-offs?
1: And, uh, John, what do you see those trade-offs as being?
2: Well, it's the argument around, um, you know, what is the point of the infrastructure investment? Mm-hmm. What is the public good that's being served by it? Um, you know, if you can't... Uh, Well, here's the thing. If you look in East Africa at the moment, I don't know um, how many of our listeners think about East African economic history, but if you think about I want to talk about East Africa. I talk about like Kenya to uh, Tanzania. These were post-Second World War, post-colonial independence movements that took over those economies. But if you actually think about the economic structures that underpinned infrastructure pre that, under colonialism, the actual infrastructure of Kenya, for example, was all directed towards taking what they produced to a port or ports and then enabling that to go back to the British, into the British Empire, okay? So it was actually directed that way. The great opportunity in Africa uh, is to shift that infrastructure investment now to intra-African trade, if you think about it. So you actually don't have a lot of intra-African rail networks which are effective, intra-African road networks that are effective. They're all geared historically. I'm not saying, but um, nothing has happened in the last 50 years. Of course, nothing happening. Yes. But this is a big shift. Okay. So anything we can do to support that is important, and it's actually uh, critical for economic growth for the East African region to enable infrastructure and support infrastructure investment. Across the region, mm. not simply to the ports, and that will actually help people, frankly, get out of poverty yes. and to get economic growth. There.
1: So, in a sense, what you're saying is governments need to spend, invest the time in in thinking about what their actual needs are going forward, but also to take the political risk in announcing those things to the market and providing signals so that the market can then respond.
2: Yeah, and look, and part of it is building political capital yeah. and then spending it on these sorts of issues. But yeah. uh, how do you have the discussion with citizens that we need this infrastructure to make it market ready? Uh, we'll actually, or we'll make it attractive to the private market, we'll need to look at X, Y, and Z as well. And a classic will be on university housing in, 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 I'm focusing on Africa at the moment, mm-hmm. but I know that um, there's a real challenge at the moment in terms of underpinning an education improvement
0: to actually improve human capability uh, in Madagascar all just I' just involved in, it,
2: just yeah. involved in it, and it's like a discussion like a chat group on this how do we move them along and one of the issues is that there's nowhere for anyone to stay when they go to the universities that are built in Malawi the same thing so part of it you actually have to create public housing or you know university housing to support that or or tertiary well, just call it tertiary housing to support that but the governments want the private sector to build that but that there is—it's—it's it's a completely unattractive proposition unless there's some form of, of cost impost yes. to actually give signals and and certainty over a period of time, mm-hmm. and also the way in which they're organised means that it's actually very hard to bring market proposals to government as well. So there's there's a lot of things that need to change to enable this to happen. But if you can get a single-minded focus around these three critical issues around transparency, consistency, and liquidity, and you actually build programs, etc., around that, and you get frameworks to support that. You know, these things are possible. We've seen it before. We've seen it in parts of Asia Pacific.
0: Melanie, John, thanks for joining us. My name is David Hasty, and thank you all for listening. We look forward to you joining us for the next part of this two-part series. This podcast is for reference purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. You should always obtain legal advice about your specific circumstances.